So friends, happy 14th of July. <laughs> so it's, uh, some, maybe some of you don't know what is the 14th of July, some of the non-French. So it's the it's Bastille Day, right? It's the day of liberation. It's our day. Day of the storming of the Bastille, the opening of the prison gates, liberation of the people. Very good. So I thought, of course, I should build some sort of theme. I mean, it's the theme every night, maybe you've noticed, right? Liberation, freeing things up. Pointing towards the kind of this possibility for a freer way of meeting life, exploring life, responding to life, experiencing life. The freeness which really is the, the true heart's longing. That longing gets kind of distorted in, or, or filtered through our various patterns and defenses and comes out in various ways as, oh, I want that or I wish I had that. Or I, uh. But if we'd really look at the essence of whatever we want, right, we find that underneath the details and dramas, underneath the thises and thats that we think we want, what we're really, we're longing for a kind of um, freeness. We're longing to know an ease with life, an intimacy with life, uh, a, a kind of a lack of friction with life. A longing, I would say, to live fully and die freely. And while we're mentioning Bastille Day, if you hear a lot of explosions later on this evening, there's no cause for alarm. That's, that's how Bastille Day gets celebrated, by blowing things up. <laughs> but generally only fireworks. So it may be that later in the night there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, bangs and pops and things and usually doesn't go on so late but if you find yourself lying in bed listening to the explosions and bangs you can remind yourself it's all about freeness <laughs> so and so that's the guiding light right of these practices and teachings. And if we undertake any real path of practice, it seems to me there are, there are three important elements of that. And the first is a connection to uh, a tradition. Right? We're kind of the inheritors of the accumulated wisdom 
the accumulated freedom of all those who have looked deeply into life before us, across the contemplative traditions. And in this case, these practices and teachings come predominantly from the Buddhist tradition. And there is elements, the ground of these teachings that I've been offering, the ground of these practices we've been exploring together, have a great longevity. Buddhist tradition, meditation, the yogic traditions, which are very, very, very closely aligned. So there's that element which is a certain uh, exploring of and maybe respect for and a real inquiry into uh, traditional teachings, we might say. The, the kind of, yeah, the, the wisdom that has been generated and refined and passed on through those traditions. And then at the same time, Second element, it's also important that we, um, we apply those traditional teachings, or often ancient teachings, in a way that meet our current circumstances. Right? We're not living two and a half thousand years ago in rural northern India. So even though the deep features of traditional teachings still apply. Those top five mind states that I spoke about on the first evening, right? those are the five that the Buddha was talking about two and a half thousand years ago. So we might have been a very different political, social, historical context, but the, the deep features, the strong features of how mind operates are basically the same, it seems, across to across culture and across time, across language, across ethnicity. And while we might focus sometimes on our sense of difference across some of those lines, feeling different because of um, religious affiliation or nationality or cultural difference or language, when we really look below those very... um, Superficial details, that's what we find. Deep features of being human are completely shared features. Human hope, human aspiration, human love, human fear, human longing for freedom. So, first element, kind of the, the kind of s- steady ground of traditional ta- practices and teachings. Second element, the willingness to bring those things alive, to apply them in a way that fits for us. The writer Roland Barthes has a line where he says, the best books should be retranslated every 20 years. And it's speaking to that need for us to actually kind of, I would say, take the responsibility for being the living generation of practitioners. It's not enough, first element, just to rely on what's been passed down and what's been inherited. 
It's not enough to rely on traditional views. It's not enough to on rely on traditional translations. You've got to kind of bring it alive. And that means often really respecting the spirit of those traditions. I would say more than the letter of those traditions. And of course, you know, Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. Right? So if we were interested in or inspired by the spirit of Buddha, Buddha, Buddha means awake. Right? So Buddha means one who's awake. Buddha means one who's waking up. Buddhism really means awakeism. Right? Maybe if only we would be more interested in awakeism than in Buddhism. And then we'd be honoring this sense of the spirit. So teachings and practices that were developed and passed down aren't teachings and practices to believe in, to adhere to. Right? They're pointers to waking up, to awakening and freeness. And so we have to find ourselves, we have this great inheritance of wisdom teachings and practices. And we have to find the way that serves our awakening. And Buddha most essentially found the resolution to his own human situation. And because deep features of human life are the same, there might be much that we can learn there to find the, re the resolution to our own human situation. But that's still going to be our own resolution, our own discovery. So, as I say, first element, this sort of traditional inheritance that we have, accu of accumulated wisdom of past generations. Second element, the willingness to actually take a responsibility for being the living generation of practitioners. And then third element, really bringing that to life. Right? Not just in the Dharma hall, not in the cross-legged position only, but actually in how we meet and explore and respond to any moment, every moment, any situation. Every situation. Our practice, really, or the freeness of our practice, doesn't get measured in being a good meditator. The freeness of our practice isn't seen in how long we can sit still for. The freeness of our practice isn't uh, known by how many breaths our attention stays on before it moves to something else. Now, freeness is known in how we clean our teeth, actually, how we live with people, and how we respond when things are difficult, how lightly we carry ourselves, how kindly we respond to others, how 
um, how deeply we know our place in life. When I say our place, how deeply we know our, our home. How deeply we feel at home in life, moment by moment, would actually is a better way to put it. And it's interesting, I was thinking about these three elements, traditional teachings, kind of contemporary expression, and, and then how that gets lived. And I was realizing that each of my primary teachers, certainly in the first 10 years or so, 15 maybe, of my practice, were kind of particular exemplars, both exemplars of freeness, but also kind of exemplars, each of them, of one of those three elements. My first formal teacher was Ajahn Buddhadasa, a very revered uh, Thai um, monk, died in the uh, mid-90s, and I spent some time with him uh, towards the end of his, his life. And so he was, he was somebody who was very steeped in traditional teachings, right? He'd been a monk since the age of 21. I think he was 86 when I spent time with him, 85 and, and then 86. So how long is that? More than 65 years in the monk's robe. 65 years following the 227 precepts of a forest monk, 65 years of one meal a day, 65 years of a fairly kind of rigorous, austere life. He had become a monk um, in Bangkok at 21 for th with the idea to ordain for three months only. It was quite a common thing at that time to ordain for three months. Basically, one would ordain as a monk if you're not really into it, just do three months. And you do three months when a family member is due to be married. Right? Because then, we've got a monk in the photographs. <laughs> Very auspicious. Nowadays, they've refined it. Now they do three-day ordinations. <laughs> so you can do just, just, you get ordained the day before the marriage. You're a monk for the wedding. And then, you quit the day after. Having ordained, however, for three months, he found himself kind of loving the contemplative life and wanting to deepen his meditation practice. And yet, he couldn't find anybody in any of the monasteries that he knew in Bangkok who could teach him meditation. A lot of the, the, you know, the, the city monasteries really are kind of more cultural centers than centers of practice. And maybe some of you have traveled to Thailand or other Buddhist countries and seen that, right? That there's a lot of ritual in the city monasteries, a lot of providing of blessings, a lot of chanting for weddings and funerals and deaths, etc. And not much meditative practice. So, Buddha Dasa took the Majjhima Nikaya, like the sort of central collection of the Buddha's talks, and went to southern Thailand, to the forest, and started to meditate on his own. 
So a rather unusual situation. Ajahn Buddha Dasa used to say, his teacher was the Buddha, basically. Because he sort of bypassed the intermediaries and just read from the texts, read from the texts. And then people started to hear there's this monk living in the jungle. And it was a very wild jungle in those days. There was wild elephants and tigers and all kinds of snakes and scorpions. And so people started to come and sit with him and slowly a kind of a sort of monastery formed around him. Rather simple monastery. Then, of course, devotees wanted to build a big shrine and have a big Buddha like they love in Thailand. And Buddha Dasa said, no, no Buddha images. Buddha sat under a tree. We'll sit under trees. No need for temples. And even when I was there in uh, 1990, it was still quite simple, the monastery. I used to, in the, there was a, a kind of area for where the foreigners would stay when we were on retreat. And the bed was a kind of a concrete slab, and we had a wooden pillow. <laughs> really. Like a block of wood like this, but not completely uh, uncomfortable because it had a little dip <laughs> carved in the wood so you could lay your head. Very comfortable. And then we would have one of these, uh, like you buy at the beach, you know, these just very thin reed mats that we could roll out to sleep on. And there was a lot of scorpions in that place. So very often one would come home to bed and there'd be scorpions in the in your bed. Right? I mean in your bed, it wasn't you know, it wasn't much of a bed, but the mosquito net would uh, lie around and you would lift up the net to one, two scorpions. And we would have a cup and a thing and there's this idea that the monastery is a sanctuary for all of life. So there's no question of killing the scorpions. We'd take them to the scorpion bucket. And each night there would be thirty to forty scorpions in the scorpion bucket. And somebody's work period job in the morning was to empty the scorpion bucket. But, of course, <laughs> they didn't go very far to empty it. <laughs> so he would, take the, he would take the bucket and go, I don't know where he would go, throw the scorpions out, and then by evening they'd be back again. So on the one hand, Ajahn Buddha Dasa was very steeped in the Thai forest tradition and uh, the, the longevity of that tradition and the formality of the monastic tradition. But he was very free in it. I remember very clearly one time him saying, and quoting a line of the Buddha, he says, Nothing is worth clinging to as I, me, or mine. Nothing is worth clinging to as who I am, as belonging to me. Right? I'm not uh, talking about material things, but actually mostly talking about views, right? thoughts. He used to talk about uh, the, this practice is one of, again and again, giving back to life what we have wrongly appropriated from it. Right. Giving back, giving back to nature, letting this body 
have its natural life, letting this breath have its natural expression, letting these feelings have their natural movement. And a kind of uh, knowing ourselves as that nature. Somebody asked him once, how do you train your monks? And he said, I surround them with metta, care, kindness, love. So I surround them with metta. And then I put them out in the nature and I leave them there until they realize that their nature is the nature. It's the kind of translation on the way he said it. Beautiful. So, this, I remember him saying this time, nothing is worth clinging to as I, me, and mine. And then he took his monk's robe and he shook it and he said, especially all this. So an exemplar of this kind of traditional practice forms, the traditional practice forms that having myself kind of uh, spent really my whole adult life, I was just 20 when I spent those months with him. So having spent my whole life kind of steeped in the Buddhist tradition in many ways, I have a real love for the traditional elements in all kinds of ways. But it's been very much a blessing for me to have had teachings, in this case from Ajahn Buddhadasa, where the, to know both that quality of love of tradition, steeped in tradition, respectful for tradition, and not clinging to this, free in the tradition. And we might value traditional teachings, traditional practices, right? That's a lot of what's been going on here this week, traditional teachings and traditional practices. Valuing them and yet leading with our experience as it is. Knowing the value of teachings and practices in the light of our experiences. Testing teachings and practice in the light of our experience. Some of you have had very you know, beautiful, powerful, important, uh, liberating experiences this week. And sometimes we're not sure whether to trust those experiences or how to trust those experiences. Sometimes, as a couple of people have said this week, and I hear it quite commonly, sometimes it's as if we, f we feel that we're imagining the experience. There's a kind of doubt that comes along either while it's happening, or then the doubt comes later, and we say, oh, did I imagine that? Maybe, to some extent. Maybe the imagination is involved. Right? But if so... That's okay. What, what characterizes liberating experience always is that in the moment of the experience, one knows that it's liberating. One knows unmistakably, not as an idea, but one knows in one's bones, one knows this is a, a truer way of seeing 
or a freer way of seeing or an authentic way of seeing. One knows there's something important, there's something expansive about this experience. Often one knows this is something I've kind of always known in some distant, unaccessed recess of mind. And now here it is, clear. Maybe the imagination's involved, but if one can imagine so, so clearly that one knows a freeness, one knows a depth, one knows an authenticity in it, call it imagination if you like. How wonderful to be able to really imagine freedom. To imagine one's way into a freer way of knowing, feeling, understanding, responding. And so, if we want to be true to the spirit of traditional teachings and practice, we do that by honoring our experience, trusting our experience, being as close as we can to our experience. One day the Buddha was in a town called Kalama and gave a teaching which has become very famous. It's called the Kalama Sutta. means the, the, the teaching given to the Kalama people where he says, please don't believe anything I say. Don't believe it because I'm somebody in a position of authority. Don't believe it because I've got a lot of people with me who seem to think I'm somebody important. Don't believe it because it sounds reasonable. Don't believe it because you'd like to believe it. And also don't reject it. Right? Don't reject it because it's uncomfortable. Right? Don't reject it because other me people might reject it. He says, but take what's offered and test it in the light of your experience. One doesn't very often hear that from some kind of spiritual authority figure. Right? Don't believe what I say. Usually it's the opposite. It's, Brothers and sisters, believe me. Shortly after the three months that I spent with Ajahn Buddhadasa, I started to practice quite regularly with Christopher Titmus, who became my primary teacher for the next ten years or so. That's where Fabrice and I met in, we think it was 93, but we're not entirely sure. And Christopher had been a monk in Thailand for six years, actually with Ajahn Buddhadasa. And then asked once why he had stopped being a monk. He said he felt like when the fruit is ripe, it has to leave the tree. And feeling that if he was to be of some service in teaching and sharing practices, etc., that that would be, be more, more appropriate or more helpful to do that in a contemporary form, lay form, etc. And Christopher also had a great... Um, what? I was going to say, had a great disrespect for orthodoxy. 
but I, that might sound a little pejorative if I put it like that, which is not what's meant. A certain similar quality to Ajahn Buddhadasa, a certain fierceness, a certain freeness, a certain willingness to uh, say what he felt needed to be said, regardless of whether it was what people wanted to hear. And it was powerful to, to study and practice over those ten years quite closely with him. It was rather ego-bruising sometimes because of being, um, you know, because of hearing things that I re- were really good for me to hear, but really not pleasant for me to hear. And having my... Um, Pride or arrogance or um, complacency kind of poked at, prodded at. And at the same time, Christopher had a very um, kind of full interest in uh, the life he was living. He stood as a member of parliament in uh, the UK three times, I think, for the Green Party in the 1980s, before the Green Party were at all fashionable. Right. When the Green Party had absolutely zero chance of winning anything. And Christopher was very clear that that's why he stood for the Green Party. That if he ever thought there was any chance of actually being elected to Parliament, he would immediately stand down. So there was a kind of, uh, in many ways, being very, very steeped in contemplative practice. At one point he did a nine-month solo retreat in a cave in Thailand. So there's a certain commitment to contemplative life. And yet, that kind of rigorous, deep, Training in freeness and awakening found its, exp- found its expression in being very engaged in political life, engaged in activism, engaged with students, engaged with uh, humanitarian work, engaged with um, going every year, for example, and teaching in the occupied territories in Palestine, engaged in uh, being a founding member of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, and working with uh, landmines in Cambodia, engaged in starting a school for the poorest children in Bihar, the state where the Buddha lived and taught, which is now one of the most uh, impoverished and lawless and corrupt uh, states in India. A lot of engagement. And sometimes we have some sense of contemplative life being one that's withdrawn in some way. And certainly there's a value. Right? That's why we might come here for a week. Right? To actually give ourselves the great gift of some solitude, some slowness, some interiority. Not because there's some idea that one's gaze should always be turned inwards but so that that interiority and that intimacy can be applied to the life we live. 
That's the invitation of teachings and practices. Right? That's the fulfillment, actually, of these teachings and practices. And then also during that time in India, I lived for about two and a half years, or nearly three years on and off, with, um, uh, with another teacher, an, an Indian teacher, who was a hermit monk. So he lived rather quietly in, um, in two small buildings uh, in the lower Himalayas. One of two of you have been there with me. And I met uh, Babaji right at the beginning of my practice. I was uh, 19, I'd just started meditating, I'd just sat a retreat, I was totally on fire <laughs> with wanting to meditate and also pretty um, crazy, really. I mean, I was, uh, I had all kinds of bizarre ideas about what it meant to meditate. I felt like I had to go to a cave. I felt that's what yogis do. Right? So I'd done this 10-day uh, uh, meditation course and I thought, that's it, I've got to go to a cave. I was terrified of going to the cave. I didn't have any, I didn't, I didn't think I even had a blanket. I certainly had no idea how I was going to feed myself. But I'd been reading these autobiography of a yogi. I don't know if you know that book, right? It's full of cosmic uh, things that happen in the yogi life. So I thought, that's it. I don't need a blanket. I don't need food. I just need a cave. <laughs> and everything will somehow happen by itself. Except I didn't really believe that. So I was terrified. But okay, that's what yogis do. So I left that place and started to walk up into the mountains. And then I met uh, a sadhu, one of the uh, kind of wandering Indian ascetic, somebody who I'd met a couple of months previously, more than a thousand kilometers away in a different part of India. And he said, uh, oh, oh, we recognized each other. His name was Fiji Baba. He'd come from Fiji when he was 19, 20, and had just stayed, never had gone back to Fiji, just stayed in India. Now he was 75. And he had this white stick with a lot of different colored cloths tied to it, which he would always carry around. It looked like this bizarre, psychedelic mop. <laughs> I asked him once, Baba, what are all these different cloths for? He said, each one is a telephone number to God. And then he shakes it, he says, I keep dialing, one day I'll get through. <laughs> was before cell phones. So, so Fiji Baba saw me on the road, he said, oh, where are you going? I said, oh, I'm going to a cave to meditate. He said, oh, God. So he said, look. You go over there, around there, up there, through there. He said, there's one Baba living there. He has a little hut. Maybe you can stay there with him. <sighs> so, 
I felt so relieved, you know, because I, you know, it was just this crazy idea of going to a cave. I was terrified. I wouldn't have lasted, you know. So I went up and I came to this very simple place, very small, these two little huts next to each other, little garden area in front, view down the valley, small Shiva temple in the front garden. And I uh, met Babaji there and uh, he didn't really speak any English much. I didn't really speak any Hindi at that time. But he made me understand. I uh, said, you know, Fiji Baba sent me and said I could stay here. So he said, okay, you can stay here. You can stay three days. And that's a kind of traditional welcome at ashrams in India. Stay three days. And then I stayed about two and a half years, on and off. You know, I spend some months and then I go off to various, to monastery or do, do some retreat practice and come back, etc. And nominally, Babaji belonged to a particular kind of sect of Shivite sadhus, the Junakara, the Dasnamis. But he was very free of all that stuff. And the Hindus... In the Hindu tradition, they really know how to g get into a lot of stuff with tradition. Right? There's a lot of very elaborate ritual, a lot of very elaborate puja. If you've ever been to an Indian wedding, or if you've traveled to India and seen uh, pujas, it's a lot of elaborate waving of things very often. Right? We wave flames, and we wave water, and we wave horsehair, and we wave peacock feathers, and we wave sweets. The 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 truc de pont, the clim de pont, exactly. And Babaji didn't really do any of that. One time he was, I remember he was going to town, or he was going away for a couple of days. And he was ready to set off, and he was just wearing his very simple orange lungi, the sadhus wear. And some of them have very elaborate kind of markings as well that they take great care to, to paint. There's one famous one which is three bands like this. Uh, it's called a tilak. And a friend of mine recently put a thing on Facebook, a picture of the, these three bands, the small one, and then the bigger one, and the bigger one like this. And he said, oh... The Wi-Fi symbol was invented in India. <laughs> so, Babaji was setting off, and I said to him, Oh, Baba, don't you want to take your trishul? Trishul is this kind of three-pointed, like a trident stick, which the sadhus often carry. And I, as I was offering him this stick, it was like I wanted him to look impressive. Because it was as if it somehow reflected on me. You know? It's like I wanted him to look like a magnificent sadhu. So I said, oh, Baba, take a trishul. <laughs> he said, not necessary. Just very simple. Simple. Mm, a lot of practice with Babaji consisted of sitting at the fire. He had, when I met him, he had been sitting at this fire for 14 years. And the fire had never been out in that time. And he'd only eaten food that had been cooked on that fire. 
And that was the kind of essence of his practice. And just like we spend a lot of time just bringing attention back to breath and body and immediacy of experience that way. And his practice was just bringing attention back to here and fire. And this kind of ongoing transformative process that's happening. You know, wood gets burned, flames burn, food gets cooked, food gets a little bit offered to the fire, food gets eaten. And when one sits like that with a fire for days and weeks and months, one starts to see the whole universe in the fire. Just like we might start to uh, see the whole of experience just in sitting down, breathing, attending to mind, being close with experience. And people would come and go at the ashram. Occasionally some other foreigners would, would come, though quite rarely. Local Indian friends would come and sometimes bring milk or bring various offerings for Babaji, etc. And he had a very kind of simple, very gracious way of receiving people. And sometimes I would say, oh, you know, this one, there's one guy, Ram Prasad, always used to come. He seemed like he always wanted something. He would never bring anything. He always wanted something. And Babaji would always just kindly give, offer him tea, offer him tea. I said to him, Babaji, this Ram Prasad, you know, he just comes here for tea. You know, it's just to say if he could go to the tea shop, but then he'd have to pay two rupees for his tea. He just comes here for free tea. He said, Martin, everyone who comes through the gate is God. Right? What if God comes through my gate and I can't even provide a cup of tea? So there's the sense of... Uh, you know, this tradition, this, the sadhu tradition, with so, there's so much around it, the face markings and trishuls and mythology and uh, stuff. But for him, garden, fire, people, tea. Attending to what's here. Being awake to who's here. Responding to what's here caring for who comes through the gate. And even though these, the, the practices here generally are grounded in the Buddhist tradition, the sense of the Mulan and, and the place we were at for 10 years before we came to the Mulan down in the Pyrenees in France, has my, and my wish and intention for this place has been very, very much guided by... Uh, that kind of uh, transmission that I feel I received from, from him right? and the, the wish to care for people. And that's our intention. You know, I speak on behalf of the whole team, really. And often that's what people feel when they come here. Right? Is that, I mean, it's physically quite beautiful here. And it's the sense that it's not just the cadre, but also the encadrement. Right, that it's not just the, how do you say that, that it's not just the frame. I'm translating from French now, it doesn't really work. <laughs> it's a good job I'm not doing the translating. It's not just the frame, it's the framing. It's not, that doesn't work. It's not just the, you know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful environment. 
and it's also the, certainly the wishes to be an environment of care. And, you know, we will benefit this week from the care that we're offered in the food and in the, the way, you know, the people who live and work here are kind of busy on our behalf, busy supporting us. So that sense, again, of a kind of freeness first, experience first, whatever's here first. And then teachings and practice are the support for that, a way of something to refer to. But if we lead with teachings, if we lead with ideas, if we lead with what we think should be happening, and that's one of the reasons I often don't speak so much about those early days of practice. You hear something about, oh, going to the cave or living with some sadhu, and how easily then we start to lead with the idea, oh, oh maybe that's what I need to do then. Right? I'll have to go to India and find a cave or, you know, or I thought I could make you with this meditation, but oh, it sounds like, you know, you have to, you know, find a bubba with a stick and a lot of <laughs> scars or something. How easily right, we get seduced by some idea of practice, by seduced by something exotic, seduced even by our own ideas of if I got more concentrated, or if I did some more retreats, or if I had more time, or if I, my mind was better. Or if, 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 if only, then something. And then we're like uh, that donkey I mentioned the other day, right? with the carrot of if only dangling in front of us, trying to catch up to some idea of what could or should be. Of course, we might have uh, aspirations, we might have wishes, we might have directions we want to point ourselves in. Lead with experience. Lead with what's here. Lead with engagement. Life is constantly appearing to us. Life's invitation is constantly arising and beckoning us. When we come on meditation retreat, there's a certain training, certain deepening, certain uh, enlivening of practice that can happen. And when we leave meditation retreat, it's the same thing, but in this kind of inclusive field. What's here? Who's here? How are things here? How am I asked, invited to meet, explore, respond to this moment? In that sense, there's no place, there's no situation, there's no moment that's somehow outside of practice. So, may we really enter into what sometimes can feel like the prison, the inner Bastille. May we really explore what it is we might be doing moment by moment that's keeping us feeling locked up. And, you know, and may we attend to our experience closely enough 
caringly enough so as to open the gates to a freeness and a responsiveness that's really in the service of our own deep well-being and in the service of all those we have contact with and in the service of a life wherein everyone in it in the depths of their heart is crying out for freedom. So, happy Bastille Day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.